Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Alejandra Bronfman. My guest today is Alison Donnell. She's the author of Creolized Sexualities, Undoing Heteronormativity in the Literary Imagination of the Anglo-Caribbean. It's published this year by Rutgers University Press. This book begins with the premise that Caribbean creolization and queerness are two sides of the same coin. She explores this provocative thought through her readings of literature. Marlon James, Juno Diaz, Thomas Glaive, and Shani Mutu are just a few of the writers she engages in this undoing of heteronormativity. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Alison, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. So um, this book is such a pleasure to read, and I wanted to start by just asking you, when did you know you needed to write this book? Um, I guess it came from sort of two, two different places of knowledge. One was that I've done a lot of work on kind of Caribbean literary history, and, and in particular, trying to find works that aren't kind of recognized or canonical. And then also from spending time in the Caribbean doing my research and working on other projects with Caribbean scholars, just being very, very aware of this kind of um, hard edge of unbelonging around queer subjectivity and just thinking how incompatible that was with a kind of recognition, embrace and acknowledgement of queerized societies. So bringing those two things together, really, I thought I'd noticed something in the literature that perhaps hadn't been noticed before, and that it was worth trying to bring that literary knowledge to bear on this kind of problem of of queer inclusion. So can we talk, before we jump into the book, can we talk about the cover? Uh, I am a big fan of Ebony Patterson's, um, and I was so pleased to see this image on the cover. And I'm wondering how specifically it relates to the themes of the book. Yeah, no, I'm actually lucky enough to to own this uh, piece of Ebony's. So it's kind of has a lot of personal significance to me. And I spent a long time kind of looking at it. And I guess, I think it foregrounds, so it's, you know, one of the um, Black Roses series, and it kind of foregrounds that contradictions between kind of performed identities, and particularly here between kind of uh, hardcore masculinity and um, a kind of um, queer fashioning and, and beauty. And there's a real tenderness, I think, in, in the work as well, not just um, the kind of disruption of the roses falling around, uh, but actually in the gaze and, and also the, the, the kind of um, stylization. So I thought the way in which, it's, in which identities are kind of stylized and this kind of embedded or embodied contradiction between different versions of masculine identity. Um, I hope that the book is, that's something that the book speaks to too. Yeah. And just to sort of um, dig a little bit more deeply into that idea. So you really, you open with a real provocation, right? Which is that you say that the Caribbean is constitutively, excuse me, constitutively a queer place. And what you're saying is that this is not about some kind of, you know, opening up or legal reform, although that's part of it, but in its constitution, it's non-heteronormative. And then you tie that to the notion of creolization. So how did you come to bring those two together? Well, I think I was very aware that because of, for, for, for scholars uh, living in the region, the problem of homophobia was perhaps 
the priority issue is a really urgent issue to address, like how to, how to contest, how to overcome homophobia. As somebody at a slightly different uh, you know, angle, as somebody who's, who really feel, has scholarly expertise, it seemed to me that the deeper issue was not contesting the homophobia, but, but was contesting this imposed structure of heteronormativity. That, you know, where, where does that come from? It has a history. It's a construction. It leads to a binary of, of hetero-homo. And we know that the Caribbean has, has been exemplary, not, not unique, but exemplary in undoing binaries in other ways in terms of cultural racialized identities. So it seemed to me that it was also exemplary in terms of undoing that binary and that actually thinking of the Caribbean as, as a queer place, a place that, that um, is about interruption and, and um, fluidity and multiplicity rather than kind of fixed and binaries and origins, that this was a, a different way into a disruption of of a, a fixed um, idea of sexuality which contributed to homophobia and in a way underpins homophobia. So why literature? It strikes me that you're building a kind of archive um, and offering it up to your readers. And I wonder if you thought about it that way and why you chose to do this through a kind of literary lens. Yeah, I mean, I think that is my only lens. That's what I know. <laughs> um, but it wasn't just, I guess I did think a lot about what does the literary have to offer to this. And I think we know the relationship. You know, it's it's not um, it's not unusual in the Caribbean for, for um, you know, leaders to be writers or poets um, to be politicians. This... Um, the intersection between ideas of rights and representation has been very, very strong in the Caribbean and reimagining the possibilities for identities, for lives outside of a, you know, imposed colonial paradigm has been so important. But specifically, I guess, I think what the literary has to offer is a couple of things, really. One is being able to read people and places on their own terms. And, and I think of that as a kind of localizing of, of literacies. So enabling a kind of new literacy to come from the inside. Um, and then I think the other thing is it allows a kind of pluralized interiority. So, you know, the literary can get inside um, and, and view things from the inside, as well as viewing things from a kind of perspective of the social so I think that you know it allows a kind of radical empathy moving say in different directions at once it allows us to um, reimagine the possibilities for living from the inside um, as well as from a kind of sociological perspective. So Glissant and Audrey Lord underwrite this book I think um, can, can you talk about how their work shaped yours? Yes, I mean, I guess I was really drawn to Gleason's idea, really, in, in Poetics of Relation, this kind of idea of diversity and openness and finding ways to overcome the kind of hierarchical structures and the divisive structures of, of, a, of a colonial um, epistemology. So for me, you know, I think that Gleason has been kind of one of the 
most influential theorists of queerization. And queerization has been one of the most influential theories of Caribbeanness, what it means to be distinctly Caribbean. Um, so I guess that in a way, I think of Gleason as my kind of being there for the conceptual work around queerization and thinking about that as as a kind of progressive um, ethical mode of, of theorizing that that has a compatibility with with, with kind of um, plural or, or contesting a, a kind of you know narrow um, sexualities, even though it hasn't really been deployed directly in that way. I was trying to kind of look at its capacity uh, to, to relate to those questions. And then Lord, well, I mean, Lord just seems to me like just such a such a kind of important figure, really, for anybody who wants to think about um, erotics. Who, for anybody who wants wants to think about um, the intersection of politics and erotic life, and to be able to think, particularly, I mean, Lord's work was very, very focused on women. And I recognize that my book, actually, I kind of recognize it retrospectively, is quite focused on masculinity. Mm. But I think that, um, again, Lord's um, kind of, um, not instruction, but invitation to think about the power uh, or the erotic as power, and to think about being able to find a way to connect to erotic, um, a, a way of being an erotic being um, and connecting as erotic beings um, beyond a kind of very, what feels sometimes like a completely pervasive social script that seeps into affective and erotic lives has been, you know, I think it's been really influential, but I think as well it, it kind of feels so relevant it doesn't feel uh dated at all when we read lord um so i think that that's you know this notion of 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 um i think you know she she talks about uh the erotic as a well of replenishing and provocative force and i was really trying to locate that in the literary works across a whole range of works um so in a way she was my kind of connective tissue in trying to work across those those different writings. Yeah, and she comes back at the end. I want to talk about that later. Um, but um, uh, the, so the arc of the book sort of takes us through kind of, I thought about them as sort of pairs of authors, right? Beginning with the heteronormative and the ways that that gets undone through a kind of series of variations on the theme of creolized sexualities. At least that's the way I read it. Um, but so before we get to the specific text, how did you understand that progression that the book kind of moves through? Um, this book took me a long time to write and I unwrote it several times. <laughs> and one of the ways in which I unwrote it was from a history. I'm kind of, I, you know, I've done a lot of work on li literary historiography and I'm very interested in how um, we tell literary histories. And initially I had this um, in a historical perspective and it felt really quite challenging to me to disrupt that. Mm. But I actually finally thought that it was at, through the focus on this theoretical intersection between creolization and queer, which I call kind of your draw up as kind of intellectual kin in the book, that would help me do the work, would most help me do the work I wanted to do, which was to 
think about what are the most constraining and diminishing versions we have of sexual identity. And then how does writing show us both an alternative to that and also the risk of not being able to break out of that? So I was interested in thinking about this gap that can emerge between heteronormativity and heterosexuality and the gap that can emerge between um, homosexuality and homonormativity. So I was really trying to think about challenges to, no- to, to normalization and rooting that through a kind of Caribbean resistance to singular norms or binaries. In the first few chapters, it's clear that the range of analysis is really broad. So Jamaica, Trinidad, London, and the influences, South Asian, British, rural, urban. And I'm wondering how important place is to the work of all of these authors and to your own analysis. Yeah, I think I think that, thank you for that. That's a really interesting question. I mean, one of, one of the early pieces um, of work that, that I did that came to be part of the book was the reading of Valmiki's daughter, um, Shani Muti's um, work. And I was really, I think I called that something like, you know, place in the possible or rewriting place in the possible. And it seemed to me absolutely fundamental that these, I, that there's an understanding of how different Caribbean places have crafted different possibilities, different scripts around um, sexuality, class, ethnicity, which are entangled with those other identities. And that actually it's a really important to be attentive to place. Um, and that was very much what I was trying to, to pull attention to place over attention in, in a way to history. I think we read so often through the historical and it seemed to me really important here to, to think about um, paying attention to the connections between people and place, um, in, in, you know, in, instead of um, people and history. Yeah, that, that really comes through. And I, it, it makes sense in, in the way that it sort of organizes the book as well. Um, so the, the chapter on Marlon James and Juno Diaz's work um, I, th- I found it, it was very interesting. You spent some time answering to critiques of their work, right? <laughs> and um, <laughs> I, I, I really enjoyed that because I thought, okay, what, you know, what, are, what is she going to do here? Um, so why, why was it important for you to do that? And how did it shape your own argument? Um, that, that, do you know what? I'm not sure I'd even recognize until you said that, that that is what I, I've been doing. So I guess I was kind of thinking my way into what I wanted to say um, and feeling that maybe without going through that, there would be um, my my own reading might feel sort of slightly um, strange or, or, or decontextualized. I mean, I guess lots of people I know found those books really difficult to read. They found the kind of masculinity, the overbearing masculinity, really kind of difficult to overcome. So I think perhaps I was trying to work through um, the attention to that and why there's so much attention to that. 
in the books in order to kind of create a platform to then think about that masculinity, not as um, a, an undisputed presence, but as something that is so disproportionate, so kind of exaggerated and, and overly constructed, um, so that I could then show how it also is very kind of precarious and, and how it fails and um, can be can be reconfigured. Yeah, I thought that, I mean, that reading just adds a whole other dimension to these texts that was, you know, was there, but but really what you do is is bring them out and make them so much more complex. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so the closing chapter is full of evocative images. And I have to say, this one, I don't know if it's the time of day that I read it or something, but I loved these descriptions of these kind of sea creatures and bodies that change and bodies that are multiple and multiply sexed and there's like all of this fluidity literally because it's more about the ocean than the other chapters um and and just in in terms of the multiple possibilities which it seems like was one of the things your book was kind of heading towards um and, and so what does what does all of that mean for this notion of creolized sexualities yeah i think it's I was really interested, uh, particularly in kind of Glaive's submerged works, of this really this idea of moving away from the citizen-shaped bodies, really trying to sort of take that, um, the force of imagination to a, a pretty extreme place so that you really think, you know, how could, ha- if we if we hadn't been conditioned, if we hadn't had our, conceptualizations of sexuality naturalized through this constructed invented historical kind of paradigm you know how might we understand each other differently or understand ourselves differently and I just think his work is so spectacularly helpful in that way because it really is so daring and it it really does release um, all of those kind of positivist uh, kind of um, questions about what is possible it kind of just moves them aside for a moment and by doing that I think it allows to allows us to kind of really really kind of rethink what we could be released from or what we need to be released from in order to kind of reconceive um, the possibilities of the erotic differently yeah it made me really want to read to read those texts. <laughs> oh um, yeah, you must. They are absolutely yeah. wonderful. Yeah, and I, I just hadn't paid that much attention to them before. So now, after this, I'm going to go read them. Um, so the book, the book ends with Lord, as we said, right? And um, you, you sort of talk about the uses of the past in order to create a different future. And it struck me that you know this is literary criticism as historiography, which um, which it's interesting that you said that that was one of your sort of aims and. It came through, even though you weren't, you sort of reshuffled the, the idea of a place and time. But it also struck me that, you know, this book is not just written for academics, but for policymakers, for authority figures, really for patriarchs everywhere, right? <laughs> um, oh, I wish. <laughs> and I wonder if that was your intention. Um, is it, yeah, I mean, I w- oh, that would be, it would be my dream, maybe. Intention may be uh, uh, may, may be um, 
I think I'm, I'm too realistic about who buys academic books to have it as my intention, but it's certainly my dream. And and at the early stage of this work, I was really fortunate to, to be funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council in the UK to spend time with um, with the um, with academics in the Caribbean who work for um, IGDS, the Gender and Development Studies um, Centre in Trinidad and in Jamaica and to work with activist groups both in Trinidad and Jamaica. Um, and I think that, that it, it both taught me to be suitably um, modest in my, in, in my, you know, or to recognise what, what I, you know, the limits of my experience in terms of not wanting to make this book um, explicitly about about that work because I feel very much that that work needs to be represented by those voices, not because of any essentialist reason, but just because actually it, those voices don't have that that many uh, channels, which is why I actually wanted to end with Colin Robinson and his poetry, because I think his poetry is actually a really important vehicle for, for also the kind of very particular um, approach that Kaiser takes in Jamaica to reimagining kind of sexuality within a social context. So I think it really helped me to become a real listener, which obviously is really good for all of us who are writers. But it also made me think that the relationship, that the literary is a really, really powerful form for rearranging how we perceive um, real worlds as well as emotional worlds and in the correspondence between those real and imagined worlds. Um, so I, I, I had that in mind all the time really was would, could this book do anything useful? Could it help us, you know, can we through literature reimagine, you know, the correspondence between those represented worlds and the, and the real worlds? I think that it does. Um, and I think that's a it's a wonderfully and wonderful and wonderfully provocative place to to end to see what what this book ends up doing out there in the world. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. I mean, it's it's lovely to hear that you were inspired by it. And I hope, you know, it would be my great hope that if it brought down one patriarch alone, that would be enough. <laughs> <laughs> you have to start somewhere, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, thank you <laughs> thank you thanks so much for listening and see you next time